Good morning. My name's Mark. I'm the discipleship pastor here at New Life, and we're so excited you're here to, uh, with us today. And it's Memorial Day weekend. It's one of the first beautiful weekends of 2019, and yet, here you are with us. So thank you so, in a building without windows. Thank you so much for, for being here with us. We really appreciate it, especially if you're a first-time guest. You know, New Life was created for you, and man, you get like, you get like extra bonus points because you came to church for the first time on a, on, a, on a Memorial Day weekend, which is just fantastic. So thank you so much. You're our honored guest. We're so privileged to have you here with us, and we've been praying for you and thinking about you. If you're online with us today, and this is the first time you've stopped online, thanks so much for joining us on Facebook Live. And if you, like my parents who are at camp this weekend, or like the other bajillion uh, Western Pennsylvanians who go to camp every other weekend all summer long, um, just remember, you can join us on Facebook Live, and so you can, you can still enjoy service all summer, even while you're away at the cabin or away at camp. Camp. This week we are in part five, I believe, of a series, about a quarter of the way through a series um, called Mountain Monologues, in which we've been looking verse by verse, chapter by chapter, at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Today we're in Matthew 5, 31 to 32. And Jesus has been really talking about some really pointed subjects, and, and this week is absolutely no difference. This week uh, Jesus is talking about divorce, and so we're going to be looking at what Jesus' teaching on divorce was in Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus, when he would gather, he would gather this really big group of people. And Sermon on the Mount is his, his, probably his longest sermon. It's the one that we know the most about, um, the one that's most impactful to the generations of the church after uh, his death and resurrection. And so he was gathered this big crowd of people, Pharisees and fishermen and all sorts of different people together. And they, they gathered on a hillside outside of Capernaum, a small fishing town along the Sea of Galilee. And so that's kind of the setting where this whole thing is taking place. And today I want to jump right in with our passage and take a look at that passage in Matthew 5, uh, starting in verse 31. But before we do that, let's just pray together. Father God, I pray right now that you would just open our hearts to receive your word and, and see what it is that you would have for us this morning, God. Help it to change our lives and transform us. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Matthew 5, starting in uh, verse 31, going to 32. We're going to be in the ESV, okay? And so if, uh, let me pull it up here. So if you want to look along with us, you can. We're in the ESV, but it's also going to be up here on the screens. It starts like this. This is Jesus talking. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Like I said, it's like pretty strong. It's like really pointed passage here. Jesus is talking about some really difficult things, and he has some difficult things to say about it. But before we dive into all the difficult things, I would like to share a story from my own life. So I was married, it'll be six years uh, this upcoming August the 3rd, and so August the 3rd, 2013, my wife and I got married, we had a reception in a castle, which is, well, not a real castle, it'd be cool if it was like, like we went to Europe and got in a real castle, but it's Shakespeare's, um, that, that castle out in Elwood City, and you know, for me as a Dungeons and Dragons nerd, like, that's awesome for me, you got married near a castle, and it's, it's, not, it's not a real castle, and it, doesn't, it sounds more expensive than what it is, it's actually one of the cheap places, so if you're looking to have an event in a castle... That is a great place to do it. Um, so we, we had our reception at Castle, and we went to uh, the airport, and we spent the night at the airport hotel, and then we got up in the morning to go on our honeymoon. And we left for our honeymoon, we flew to Colorado, and we were spending a week, six nights, seven days um, around uh, the Colorado Springs area near the Rocky Mountains. It was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So we were doing three things. We were staying two nights in a bed and breakfast, two nights uh, at a cabin in the mountains, and then we were doing two nights in uh, Colorado Springs and hotel. And so the first two 
nights we spend at the bed and breakfast, and it's, it's beautiful, and each morning you wake up, and we spent a time with this older couple who was, made us breakfast because it's a, it's a bed and breakfast. And so um, you kind of figure that's what happens there, right? And we would sit out and have coffee and omelets on, on this beautiful balcony that overlooked down into the wilderness. It was just a- absolutely amazing. So after two nights, we packed up our stuff, and we went to our cabin, and we're out in this middle of nowhere. We're looking forward to a couple of days with very limited contact with anybody else, just the two of us. And um, we stopped at like a, I don't know, like a grocery store or something, and we picked up some food that we could cook while, you know, we were up at the cabin. And, um, you know, I love cheeseburgers, and so... Uh, as you can tell, but I love them. I just love cheeseburgers. And so we picked up some, some burger meat. In fact, if you have a cheeseburger right now, I'm confident that I could eat it and preach at the same time. If no one does, I understand. Um, but so we picked up some stuff, and we went up, and we started. We grilled out on the back porch, and it's this beautiful cabin in the middle of the Colorado wilderness. And, you know, the, a mule deer were, like, literally, like, these big mule deer, this big buck, like, it, like the a flock of the deer. No, a herd of deer. Um, they came up, and they were, like, hanging out right a flock of deer. <laughs> And I hunt, right? <laughs> like, and I hunt. I'm a hunter. <laughs> I grew up on a, a farm, basically, a flock of deer. Um, so, so, it's like one herd escapes your mind. Um, uh, so we, 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 you know, it was just beautiful. We grilled out on the back porch, and it was just awesome. And, and we ate dinner. And I don't know if you have ever met someone who doesn't eat all of their food or just leaves a small corner of every sandwich around. But that's my wife. And so my wife had a small corner of her, her burger left. And so I took it, and I threw it off the back of the balcony and down in, into the woods. And, and Jen, who's here, she's beautiful, and she's letting me tell this story, which I really appreciate, um, said, are you worried about attracting a bear? I said, I am not. I'm not worried about that. So, uh, you know, we finished eating, and we went into the cabin, and we were working on a puzzle together, and then we went off to bed. And I went to sleep. And I, I, I'll admit, it was like a little nerve-wracking because you're in the middle of nowhere. I mean, Colorado is vast, and you're, like, really alone. And we're in this big, you know, cabin, just the two of us. It was a little bit nerve-wracking. But as I went to sleep that night, I did not think about the burger. It never crossed my mind. I didn't think about it. I wasn't worried about it. But that was not the case with my new wife. My new wife was so worried about the burger that she did not sleep. And she was sitting there anxiously thinking about the burger because this is, this is what's going on in her mind, right? A bear is going to find this burger piece. And when the bear finds the burger piece, hungry for more burger, obviously, because it was just a corner of a sandwich, is going to look at the, make the connection. This sandwich was here in the woods. It must come from this cabin. So the bear would strategically sneak up and pick the lock on our sliding glass door. And then he would come in our house and go to our fridge. And when he realized there was no burgers left because I had eaten them all, he would inevitably come and eat us, right? So this is the train of thought for the bear. They're going to come in the windows of bears all over the place. And so um, she wakes me up out of a dead sleep in the middle of the night and says, Mark, like, what? Um, and she says, oh, it, I'm worried you think that that piece of burger attracted a bear. <laughs> no. I do not think that. Okay. Then I heard something I did not expect. Can we go get it? <laughs> no. We cannot go get it. But I have been married for two days. So I'm inexperienced. So after a couple more minutes of conversation, I had my shoes on and I was heading for the door with my iPhone light. Got my iPhone, I'm turning on the flashlight with my wife of like two and a half days in tow right behind me a couple of steps. Now, if like me, you follow the logic of this situation, you would come to the same conclusion. If this burger did indeed attract a grizzly bear, the last place you want to be in the middle of the night is with the burger. 
You don't want to be where the burger is. You want to be anywhere but where the burger is. Preferably locked securely inside of a cabin. But here I am with my wife and my iPhone sneaking down this mountainside looking for the burger. The only thing in the area that a bear also wants to find. We found the bun. The burger had abandoned the bun. We decided that was good enough because any bear who finds a piece of burger on the ground but no bun must assume, well, this couldn't have been humans around because there's only a barbarian. We'd eat a burger without a bun. And so we left the piece of burger because it's brown and we're in the woods at midnight, right? Who's going to find it? And we take the burger bun and we hike back up to our cabin and we throw the bun away and go to sleep. Now, the next morning, we had a conversation about the logic behind going out to find a small corner of a cheeseburger in the middle of the night in the Colorado Rockies because we're afraid of a bear. I tell you that story for one simple reason. Marriage can be weird. It can just be weird. You will do things and be asked to do things that you never imagined once you get married because marriage can just be strange. And once you have kids, it's even weirder. It's even weirder. Like, you know, guys, you will willingly put stuff on your hands once you have kids that you never thought you would ever willingly let be on your hands. There has been more times than I want to count that I looked at my daughter's nose and I said, give me that snot. Or the worst is whenever I have nice pants on, I said, give me that snot. Then I wipe it on her, right? Your mom washes those PJs pretty frequently. It'll be okay. You get more baths than I do. You'll be fine. But marriage is weird, and it can be really challenging. In fact, marriage can be frustrating and difficult. It can be just, just terrible sometimes. Sometimes marriage can suck all the life out of you, and sometimes marriage can give you life, and it can be rewarding and amazing. And sometimes you throw all those words into a big pot, and you mix it up, and that's what you get most days. Marriage is weird, and it's difficult. Yet marriage is one of the things that God ordained. It's one of the things that he wrote into creation. It's one of the things that he intends for us. From the very beginning of time, God created human beings to relate to one another in a covenant relationship called marriage. From the very beginning of time, God created human beings to relate to one another in a covenant relationship called marriage. Before Jesus came, God had covenant relationships with his people. He had one with Moses, he had one with a guy named Abram, he had one with the Israelites. He continued to make these promises and come into these covenants. And then God created marriage so that we would understand the significance and the importance of the covenants and the promises that he was making with the people that he had chosen. Marriage was supposed to be a representation of the covenant relationship and the importance of the covenant relationship that God had with his people. And in the same way that God will never break his covenants that he made, he intended for us not to break the covenants that we have made inside the context of marriage as well. In fact, that's really our take-home point today. When we look at our take-home points, the one point I'm going to seek to make that we can take home and live out in the coming week, divorce was never God's plan for marriages. Divorce was never God's plan for marriages. Now, I'm saying that in a culture that ends, about 50% of marriages end in divorce. Some statistics say that a little bit more than that, sometimes uh, marriages inside the church end in divorce. And so I, I know that I'm saying that, and like 50% of us in the room have gone through a divorce. I'm not condemning you, and I'm not going to be trying to condemn or judge anybody throughout this entire message because of what has happened in your life. I'm, I'm not. I'm just going to be looking at the Word of God and saying this is what God intends. And God did not intend marriages to end in divorce. God intended marriages to last 
a lifetime. A few months ago, I preached a message on, uh, on ending marriage and, and the, some of the few, very few biblical justifications for divorce and for separation um, from the marriage covenant. And so if you missed that, it, we preached it on November 18th, 2018. Go back and watch it. I'm not, I'm not saying that because I preached it. Um, I'm just saying it because it's an important part of this conversation. And in that message, we talked about the three um, biblical justifications for marriage or, se- or for divorce or separation. And they're this. The first one is marital unfaithfulness. This is a sexual unfaithfulness um, to the marriage covenant. Sexual unfaithfulness to the marriage covenant. Then abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. And so there's room in the Bible where uh, if an unbelieving spouse decides to walk away from the marriage covenant, the believing spouse can let them go. And then the, the separation is abuse. And abuse comes in many, many different forms, and I'm not going to try to identify all of those forms today. It's different in every relationship that has abuse in it, but abuse is one of those reasons for uh, temporary or permanent separation from the marriage relationship and the marriage covenant. But we addressed this really thoroughly back in November, so we're not going to take time to address it today. But it's really, really, really important, and it's central to our understanding of marriage inside the church. And so if you haven't, if you haven't checked that out, I would encourage you to do so, just because it brings full circle everything that we're going to be talking about today. In the book of Genesis, God told us that he created Adam and then he created Eve. In fact, he created Adam and, and Adam would work with him in the garden, naming the animals and tending to the garden. And then uh, Adam was in search for a helper that was suitable for him. And after a time, there was no suitable helper that could be found because God lives in perfect community with himself. So he desired for us to live in perfect community with one another because we were made in his image. So because we're creating God's image, we needed that community. So God caused Adam to fall into a sleep and he pulled from a rib and he created Eve. And Eve wasn't a servant to Adam. He was Adam's, she was Adam's completion. In fact, that's, that's God's crowning jewel on all of his creation was women. Men, do you hear that? God's crowning jewel on all of creation was women. He created them because creation was incomplete. It was not good. And man was incomplete without her. And they weren't created to, to rule over one another. They were created to mutually serve and love one another. And it was inside the context of this marriage relationship that we were supposed to be able to see the way that Jesus or the way that God loves his people and Jesus loves his church. In fact, Jesus compares his love for the church to a man and a wife and the love they have for one another. He he calls his church, he calls us his bride. So it's significant. Marriage relationships were to be the imitation of God's relationship with us. And we can agree with that, but then Jesus taught these words. He said, it is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We get hung up on this. We get all bent out of shape over this teaching. Now, we can agree with Jesus that marriage is important and it's a beautiful thing, and in the right context, it gives life to us and it fulfills us, and we can agree with Jesus on that, um, but, but whenever we read this passage and this teaching, it's hard, and much of it is because our view of marriage is that marriage is to make me happy, right? The reason I marry Jen is so that Jen can make me happy, not so that I can serve her, not so that I can love her, not so that I can bring her happiness, but so that she can make me happy, which is a skewed, Americanized view of what marriage was meant to be. Yes, there should be completion that comes through the marriage relationship, absolutely. There should be fulfillment that comes for it, yes. There should be some element of happiness that comes from the marriage relationship, absolutely. But that's not the primary function of marriage. The primary function of marriage is marriage by its nature was meant to be a reflection of God's relationship with us. 
Marriage by its nature was meant to be a reflection of God's relationship with us. And God doesn't break his promises. And so marriage was not to end. It was to last a lifetime. Because marriage is God's reflection of his relationship with us. And when marriage ends in divorce, it's a bad reflection of the way that God loves and relates to his people. So of all people, though, who contributed to the conversation about marriage, I think the person who says it the most bluntly is a guy named Malachi. So in the Old Testament, he was a prophet, and he's speaking about marriage, and he says this, Malachi 2, 15 to 16. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and in spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. Catch this. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. God hates divorce. And if we're honest, so do we. Even if we've been through a divorce and we're remarried now, and this, the new person we're married to, we're very happy with, we still hate divorce. Why? Because divorce tears apart families, destroys relationships, it wrecks homes. It takes away children's security. Divorce oftentimes financially bankrupts both parties. Divorce destroys life. So, you know, I was texting a couple of guys, um, a couple of buddies of mine who both come from a divorced home, and I was texting back and forth, and I was preparing a message, and they said, oh, what? I said divorce. And one of the guys texted back, great, divorce sucks. It's the single hardest thing I've ever gone through in my life. And he's 30-something now. And yet that's still the single hardest thing he's ever gone through in his life. Why? Because divorce sucks. And I think one of the things that we can all agree on is that if we could get rid of it, we would. We should. Because divorce has a tendency to completely destroy lives. What most of us have an issue with is not that Jesus hates divorce or that God hates divorce. We have an issue with the words that Jesus chose to use to emphasize just how much damage divorce can do. Because he slings around words like adultery, and it's like they're a little hard to take, and it's a really seems like a really misogynistic statement that he makes because he's directing it all at men. And it's really hard to sort of understand and take in. But in order to understand what Jesus is talking about, we have to understand the context that he's talking in. Because Jesus isn't talking just to us. He's talking to these people who are sitting on this hillside outside of the town of Capernaum 2, 000, over 2,000 years ago. And so when we look at the context, we need to understand exactly what is going on. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to be looking at the context. So the first part of the context is we need to look at it in the grand scheme of what Jesus is talking about. Well, first off, he started talking to the people about the Beatitudes, about what it means to be blessed. Then he goes into talking about salt and light. Pastor Chris talked about that several weeks ago. And after that, he begins to get in to how he's sort of engaging with the law. And from then on, he begins to talk about the way he's engaging with the law. And we're talking about the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. What they called the Torah or the Pentateuch. They're the books of Moses. And he begins adding to it. In fact, Pastor Chris talked about how he talks about anger and how if you're angry with your brother, it's as good as murdering him. So he's not just taking scripture. He's not just taking you shall not murder. He's saying you shouldn't be angry or curse your brother either. He's adding to the word of God, which only God could do. Then he gets into this lust and adultery thing, and he says, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even lust after another woman in your heart, or if you're a woman after a man in your heart, that you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. And then he goes on to say that you would be better off cutting off your hand and plucking out your right eye than you would to go to hell with both your hands and both your eyes. He takes lust that seriously. 
Now, when we look at that, we understand that Jesus is talking in hyperbole. In other words, he's talking in some extremes. He doesn't literally mean he wants you to cut off your hand and pluck out your eye. Because I don't know about you, but if I sin with my right eye and my right hand, and I pluck them out and I cut them off, I would figure out how to do it with my left hand and my left eye. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm pretty resourceful like that. And if I pluck that and cut that, I would still have two feet. And I don't know about you, but my tongue gets me in more trouble with sin than just about any other part of my body, and so I'd have to cut that out. I don't think that Jesus meant that we needed to go around cutting off our limbs and plucking out our eyes. But he did want us to realize that lust and adultery are just that serious because they'll destroy our lives. And then in this passage, he's sort of capping that off. So this is a piece of he's continuing to talk about this lust and adultery piece, and he's bringing this in now to a conversation about divorce. So what is Jesus serious about and what's exaggeration? So when we look at this passage, which pieces are hyperbole and which pieces are just deadly serious? Because we need to understand the context that Jesus is teaching in. See, Jesus was, oh, well, I'm going to go to that in a minute. We need to understand the context that Jesus was teaching. So we also have to understand something else. At that time, there was a, a big thing that was going on inside of Jewish culture. So there was these people named Pharisees, and they were the teachers of the law. And when they would teach the law, they would come up under different yokes or different learnings. And when they would come up under these different learnings, they would take on the learning of someone who came before them. Sometimes they would add to it, but mostly they took up the learning. So there was two schools of thought when it came to marriage, and there was two schools, literal schools, that Pharisees would grow up in, and they would teach these two different schools of thought. The first was Hillel, and the second was Shammai. Hillel and Shammai. The Hillel school of pharisaical, or pharisaical thought would uh, actually teach that it was okay for a man to divorce a woman for any reason at all. He needed no actual reason to marry. If he was sick of her, if he was tired of her, he didn't want to look at her, he wanted someone younger, didn't matter, he could divorce her. All that he had to do was give her a certificate of divorce that would basically be something that would say you are released of your marriage covenant, go. And he could kick her out. Now, that was a horrible thing to do to a woman in the time because, once again, Jesus is teaching this in context, right? And that means that a woman to be kicked out of her home, if she wasn't married anymore, if she was divorced, meant she didn't have any options. She could beg or she could be a prostitute. That was about it. She had no way to take care of her children. She couldn't go out and be a single mom and get two jobs. None of the, just, just being tough, none of those things would work. And so it was a horrible, horrible thing that was happening to women in the culture. Now, the other school of thought, the Shemai, they actually taught something very different. They thought the only reason that a man could divorce his wife was for marital unfaithfulness. If she was sexually not faithful to the marriage, then he had the right to divorce her. But that was the only reason. So when we know these two different schools of thoughts that were going on, we realize that Jesus is addressing a very, very specific subject at a very specific time. So Jesus is addressing a specific society at a particular time with timeless implications. He is addressing a specific society at a particular time using timeless implications. So what if this applies to us and what if it applies to them? Well, first of all, we have to realize that Jesus is firmly planting himself in one of two camps here. There's two teachings. There's people in the crowd, Pharisees in the crowd, probably from both sides of that teaching. There's probably Pharisees that think it's okay to just send your wife away, and there's Pharisees who say that you can only send your wife away and you can only divorce her if she's been sexually unfaithful to the marriage. There are people, everyone in the crowd probably knows about both of these schools of thought that are coming from the Pharisees, and there's people who align themselves on both sides. Jesus is firmly planting himself in one side. This seems a little misogynistic because Jesus is addressing men, but we also have to realize realize he's not talking to us. He's talking to Israelites 2,000 years ago. And women didn't have the right to get a divorce 2,000 years ago. Women were little more than property, little more than slaves inside the marriage relationship. 
They did not have the same rights. Now, I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying that's wrong. And I'm actually saying in this passage, Jesus isn't demeaning women or belittling women. He's not making a broad, sweeping statement about how a woman should act inside the marriage relationship or that she doesn't have any rights inside of it. In fact, he is firmly taking a stance to affirm and protect women in this. Because in the two schools of thought, the one that he aligns with actually affirms and protects women inside of the marriage relationship, saying, men, you do not have the right to just divorce a woman for whatever reason. There has to be a very specific reason that you can divorce a woman. You can't just send your wife away. You can't deal with your marriage covenant that casually, that flippantly, that irreverently. They're more important than that. And so Jesus is actually taking a firm stance and affirming and supporting women in the culture that he's in. But when we read it from our cultural perspective, it can seem like he's demeaning them. When in fact, in the culture that he's speaking to, he's affirming, he's uplifting, and he's protecting women. He's firmly planting himself in this camp. So then what is all this stuff about adultery? About if you marry a woman who's been divorced, or you marry someone who's been divorced, that you're committing adultery, if you send her away, that they're, you're, you're condemning her to a life of adultery. What does that mean? What about me? What if I've been divorced? What if I was divorced, but it was before I was a Christian, and now I'm remarried? What if I was a Christian when we got a divorce, but it wasn't for marital unfaithfulness? What if I am divorced, but it wasn't me? What if the person turned and abandoned me and walked away and two years later the state of Pennsylvania put an end to our marriage? What if I couldn't do anything about it? Am I living in adultery? What about my friend, my mom, my dad, my brother, my co-worker who's in that exact same situation? Are they living in adultery? What do I say to them? What am I supposed to do? And these are all really good questions. And the way to answer all of those questions is to look at the context of what Jesus is teaching at this particular time. Because we can take these things and we can pull out what Jesus said and apply it to our context when Jesus is teaching it to a very specific context. At a particular time, a specific culture. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's not only affirming and protecting women, and he's standing against this dehumanizing, demonic, religious ideology that was destroying marriages, belittling, and destroying the lives of women. He's also making a direct attack upon the men who are affirming that teaching. So you have a group of Pharisees who are saying it's okay to divorce a woman by just giving her a written notice and sending her away. And he's saying directly to those individuals, he's saying, (laughs) not only is that not okay, but you're an adulterer. You're living in adultery, and you're condemning that wife that you sent away to live in adultery. Now, he's talking to Pharisees. Now, these are men who literally think they're perfect. The Apostle Paul said in his teaching that when he was a Pharisee, by all ways of the law, he was perfect. We all grow up in a culture where we all understand, even from kindergarten, that we're not perfect and we all make mistakes. The Pharisees did not get that. They literally thought that they were perfect. And Jesus is saying, not only are you not perfect, but you're you're in idolatry. Adultery, not idolatry. Probably idolatry, too. but Adultery. You're living in adultery. And that was not like a light accusation to accuse someone who thought that they were perfect, that they are committing a sin that's in the Ten Commandments, not even like one of the prophets, but it was in the Ten Commandments written by the hand of God on the stone tablets and given to the prophet Moses himself. Listen, to commit adultery in that culture wasn't something casual that ended in separation. It was something that resulted in someone being stoned to death. He is saying that we have the right, you Pharisees, we can round you up right now and stone you to death for what you've done. 
And you're condemning the women that you have sent away to be stoned to death as well. Wow. Like that's a deep cut and that's a deep attack, a direct attack on a really terrible way of life that was being promoted throughout all of Israel. Does that mean is it attached to us today? Well, yes and no. Jesus undoubtedly was still talking in some form of hyperbole here. He was using some extreme language. He didn't actually expect the Israelites to gather up the Pharisees right then and there and stone them to death. But that is what he was implying. He was emphasizing how horrible this way of life and this religious ideology was to God's kingdom and to God's people and to women in the culture of God's chosen people. What he does definitely affirm here, though, not only does God hate divorce, but so does Jesus. And it wasn't his plan. In fact, Jesus' plan was so much not divorce that it's very clear that Jesus wants us to fight for our marriages and the marriages around us. That Jesus desires for us to fight for marriages and the marriages around us. He affirms marriage rather than getting rid of it. He embraces marriage and shows how important this covenant relationship is. Even when marriages are weird, even when you're searching for a cheeseburger in the wilderness, even when they're hard, even when they suck, even when you don't feel like it anymore, even when you've been fighting for a long time, even when it doesn't make sense, even when you just don't want to try anymore, Jesus is affirming marriage. Now, please understand, this doesn't mean that we can just get a divorce for any reason that we want. It also does not get away from the three biblical reasons for divorce and separation from the marriage covenant we talked about earlier. Marital unfaithfulness, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, and abuse. Those three things are still reasons that are stated not just in Jesus' teaching, but they're also reaffirmed and affirmed in the teaching of the disciples. It doesn't get away from those things. It's not getting rid of those reasons. Those things are still alive and well. But what Jesus is saying is in this particular case, whenever men were sending women away to be divorced and condemning them to a terrible life that they needed to reemphasize the importance of marriage in their culture. And quite frankly, so do we. We need to reemphasize the importance of marriage in our culture. And so if you're at a place right now where you know that your marriage is just spiraling out of control and you're careening for a divorce, please get help. Listen, it's easy to show up on Sunday morning and put a smile on your face when you didn't talk to each other the whole way here. It's easy to pretend like everything's okay for an hour a week when at home everything is not. I realize that. This summer we're going to be putting together a marriage mentorship ministry that's going to be couples who can come alongside other couples during a trying season. And it's not because the couples who are doing the mentoring are perfect. It's because they've had difficult seasons as well. And they've walked through terrible things together. And they want to help couples who are walking through those same things and come alongside them and affirm them. They want to embrace them and help them to strengthen their marriage. If you're in that place, please go to counseling. Please go to counseling before you wish that you would have. Because many couples who end up in divorce wish they would have started in counseling a lot sooner than what they did. Don't be so bullheaded to believe that you can't get help and don't be so afraid of being embarrassed that you won't fight for your marriage. Go on dates. Spend time together care for one another, and serve one another. Find a couple that's been married longer than you that has a marriage that you want and go hang out with them. 
Believe it or not, most couples who've been married for a while and are trying to live out a godly marriage are really flattered when there's a younger couple who wants to be like them. My wife and I have a couple couples in our lives who we want to be like one day. And so we go hang out with them. We see how they interact with one another and how they raise kids, and we just try to learn from them. And if your marriage is healthy and happy, then that's great. But don't get complacent. Please don't take it for granted. It takes a lifetime to become one. It takes only a very short, brief period of time of being lazy to become divided. Continue to fight, embrace, enhance, and better your marriage. Men, this is for you very specifically because marriage is an important thing for men and we've largely dropped the ball and I'm not trying to condemn, I'm just saying that we have. Men reject passivity and accept responsibility. You are the God-ordained leader of your household. And that doesn't mean that you just get to make decisions about what restaurant to go to when you're feeling particularly bullheaded. In fact, Jesus says those who would lead would be the greatest servants, which means inside your home, you are to serve more than anybody else. Uh, Like, that's convicting for me, because I know how often I don't want to empty the dishwasher. Like, I get it. But we are to be the greatest servants inside our homes so that we can lead our homes. And one day we will stand face to face with Jesus and we will have to give an account for the way that we have led our wives and our children. So in conclusion, this means that we have to be intentional about our marriages. We can't be lazy about them. That we have to pray for our marriages. That we have to focus on them this weekend for all weeks. And if we're not married, it means that we need to be praying for the marriages in our lives because every marriage needs prayer. In fact, that's really our next step this week. It's I will work on my marriage or pray for the marriage of someone I know this week. I will work on my marriage or pray for the marriage of someone I know this week. Our marriages are too important to ignore. We must be intentional about them every day. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. I praise you, Lord. I just ask right now that you would help us and strengthen our marriages. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, God. Help us to be a church that's unified, that we would be a great representation, even when it's tough, even when our marriage isn't fun, that would help remind us of the fact that it's not always fun for you to love us either. I pray, God, that we would focus on living better marriages and be intentional. In the end we pray, amen.